ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И прибитие их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Just remember, if you like what you hear on the SRB Podcast, consider becoming a monthly sustainer on Patreon or make a one-time donation. This podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by going to seansrussiablog.org. Why did Stalin have Marshal Mikhail Tukhachevsky and several generals executed and purged the Red Army's officer corps in 1937? especially with war looming. Historians have been grappling with this mystery for decades. Peter Whitewood takes up this question in his book, The Red Army and the Great Terror, Stalin's Purge of the Soviet Military. In it, Whitewood challenges conventional wisdom and points to a theme listeners of my previous interviews on the terror should be familiar with, the Bolsheviks' tendency to over-exaggerate threats to their power. According to the Soviet political police, Many of these threats existed within the Red Army from its very inception. Peter Whitewood is a lecturer in history at York St. John University, where he specializes in Soviet history, military history, and the aftermath of war. He's the author of The Red Army and the Great Terror, Stalin's Purge of the Soviet Military, published by University Press of Kansas. Here's Peter Whitewood. So your book explores the terror in the Red Army. Why don't we start by having you briefly lay out the impact of the terror on the army and how historians have traditionally understood it? Well, the military purge, purge of the Red Army in, in 1957, is a central part of the Great Terror. And, and this, this purge erupts in June 1957, and it kind of continues till late 1938. And it has significant impact on the Red Army, there's various different figures, but um, it's approximately 35,000 army leaders are affected in some way. So this isn't the rank of file. So about that, many people are discharged and there's around 5,000 arrests, 37, 5,000 arrests in 38. And of course, there's the numerous executions. And the purge is really, I suppose, best known for the arrest and execution of Marshal Mikhail Tukhachevsky. Right, so he's kind of the deputy of the Red Army in 1937. He's world-renowned, kind of the finest mind in the Red Army. And so in that, in that sense, it's a very dramatic moment. Um, it has an international impact. And, and it, it's a significant attack on the Red Army, which is an institution central to Stalin's power. And there are two main explanations of this. The first is the, the great terror which affects all spheres of state and society. In 1937, it just kind of naturally bleeds into the Red Army. But this doesn't really tell us much about why the military purge happened, when it did, and, and for what reason. The second explanation is a bit more complicated, and this is that Stalin is consolidating power over the Red Army in 1937. So he doesn't like Tukhachevsky, doesn't trust him, doesn't trust the people in the high command. But he needs a pretext to, you know, have them arrested and executed. And the way he does this is to have the NKVD, they, they fabricate a dossier of evidence against Tukhachevsky, you know, that he's working with the Germans, that kind of thing. He's a counter-revolutionary. And this is done outside of the USSR. Then it's sent back through an intermediary, which is Edvard Bernisch, the uh, president of Czechoslovakia. And then, then, you know, this is a frame-up, and then Tukhachevsky is arrested and executed. But the, the kind of big problem with this is the dossier has never been found. There's no evidence of it in the archives. It's not mentioned in any of the key documents. 
Uh, to give you one of the, an example of this is um, a military Soviet meeting in June 1937. So this is the month that the military purge really begins. This is a meeting of all the high command and senior officers. It's where Stalin lays out the plot. He doesn't mention the dossier. And it seems very surprising that he gets all these efforts to have it kind of fabricated, especially outside the Soviet Union, and then they don't use it. And, you know, he kind of much more easily had Tukhachevsky framed inside the Soviet Union, like false confessions and so on. Right. Let me ask you about this the, this dossier, because it has played such a prominent role in, in, in historians' uh, understanding of the purge and the Red Army. What is its history? Where did, it, where did the idea come from? Where did it first emerge as something that existed? And, and how have historians dealt with it over, over the last you know, several decades? Well, it, it's, if you look back to books on the Great Terror in, from the 1960s, you know, some of the early stuff, uh, like by Robert Conquest and so on, the dossier story appears in these books, and it, it's, it, there's a lot of kind of memoir basis to the story. And so, you know, uh, kind of uh, Edward Banish talks about it, you know, kind of receiving this information, passing it on to the Soviet ambassador in Prague. But yet in reality, he gets the dates wrong. You know, the historians have looked into this, and actually it doesn't quite tally up. But when he says he received the information, he, he kind of hears stories after the military purge has begun. And it was given also kind of a boost when uh, Nikita Khrushchev acknowledges the, the dossier and existence of this, this kind of evidence in, um, you know, during de-Stalinization. But, you know, as I say, I think it's been too uncritically accepted. I mean, it's a very widespread story of the military purge, but it's really nothing but a myth. And, and so one of the, key, the things I was really keen to do in the book was to write a history of the military purge which didn't use this dossier story as kind of underpinning it. Yeah, you, you, you're trying to bring a new perspective to the purge of the Red Army. So what, why don't you talk a bit about some of the, the questions you came up with in challenging the traditional view, and, and what is your own understanding of what happened? Well, there are a few different ways I approached it. I suppose, firstly, is that you've got to take the long view of the military purge. You can't just concentrate on 1937, you can't just concentrate on the 1930s, you need to go back to the formation of the Red Army in uh, early 1918, because that's where you start to see the, the beginning of these problems that the Bolsheviks have with their military. To kind of talk a little bit about this, Bolsheviks were very kind of reluctant to form a standing army in the first place. You know, it's something they didn't want. They regarded standing armies as you know, the instruments of capitalist powers, you know, as a kind of a relic of a doomed era. And they also knew that you know, the Russian Imperial Army had this long history of intervening in, in politics. And, 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 and you know, Bolsheviks knew their history, so that they know revolutions could be derailed by the ambitions of you know, military leaders. But it's a civil war, right, after the revolution, so they have no choice. They have to have an army. They're facing the white armies, they're facing, you know, hostile socialist parties, rebellious peasantry. And it's Lenin and Trotsky, who obviously becomes the, the head of the Red Army, they know this. And so they force through having a standing army and not a people's militia, which many Bolsheviks believed was kind of more ideologically acceptable. So there are a lot of doubters. And it, it's an, an early compromise that the Bolsheviks made in 1918. But the real problem with the Red Army, well, one of the big problems in 1918, is the Bolsheviks don't have military experience. And so this is where you start to get the perceived vulnerabilities in the military. And this is kind of a story that I... I could trace throughout the 1920s and 30s all the way up to 37. So 1918, three quarters of the officer corps are from the old Imperial Army. You know, the people who didn't go over to the whites, 
but they, they agreed to fight for the Bolsheviks, but they're not natural revolutionaries. So there's lots of fears and mutants and betrayals. And so this is true, but the key distinction, it's another thing which I emphasize a lot in the book, is that these fears are exaggerated, you know, they're, they're overblown, and there are various reasons for this. Class prejudice is bad intelligence, but the vulnerabilities within the Red Army, what we perceive to be kind of attached to the Red Army, are consistently exaggerated. So that's one of the big differences, I think, in the book to other histories of the military purge. It takes a longer view, and it concentrates a lot more on the perceived uh, security vulnerabilities of the Bolsheviks uh, attached to their new military force. Yeah, threat perception and the over-exaggeration of threats seems to be one of the new angles that, that some historians are focusing on in terms of trying to understand the, the terror. And it's interesting because on the one hand, you know, the Civil War creates the definite context for this. I mean, the revolution, but the Civil War increases this perception of vulnerability, the perception of enemies being hidden, enemies being out there wanting to get us. But at the same time, it's, it's a bit strange because the Bolsheviks do win the Civil War. So what about the Red Army in the 1920s, even after the victory in the Civil War, perpetuates this concern about threats and enemy infiltration and manipulation of the army? How does this play out in the 1920s? Well, yeah, of course, you know, the Bolsheviks, they win the Civil War, but for them, the danger doesn't dissipate. And this, this really, it's, the whole kind of broader context of this is that their view of the Civil War is that they're not, you know, the White Army's they're, they're, they're the kind of immediate enemy, but they're, they're, the strings are being pulled by imperialist powers. And, of course, the, the World Revolution, which Lenin uh, put a lot of optimism and hope in, 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 in the time of the revolution, this doesn't materialize. And so they find themselves surrounded by what they see as hostile capitalist powers. This is capitalist encirclement. And in this context, the Red Army is of paramount importance. You know, they have to have a, a, an army that could defend and kind of repulse any new invasion. And in the 1920s, after the Civil War, the, the, the big problem as far as the army is concerned is that the White Armies may well have been exiled from, from the Soviet Union, but they're still hostile. They're still thinking about you know, ways to overthrow the Bolsheviks. And you know, the, the military option really is off the table, but they do start using terrorism. You know, they, they carry out various terrorist attacks. Particularly, particularly in kind of 1927, but they, they, they also try to infiltrate the Red Army because it's a natural target. You know, there's kind of a common soldier bond between military specialists who are still in the Red Army because it takes time to recruit and train a new generation of Red commanders, you know, Bolshevik officers. So they're still stuck with the military specialists. And so the same security anxieties are kind of lingering in the 20s, perceived kind of vulnerability around the Red Army. And so the political police, the uh, GPU, OGPU, they put the army under um, surveillance. And it's not just the uh, military specialists and the kind of the white migre uh, groups. You've also, there's also the um, threat from foreign agents. This is capitalist encirclement, the Red Army, you know, as far as the Bolsheviks are concerned, the Red Army is the object, the target that will be subverted, that will be infiltrated and there are various concerns and, and, and arrests made of supposed foreign agents throughout the 1920s. But again, a lot of this is exaggerated. When you look at the numbers, there's not that many people arrested in the army for subversion, being a supposed agent, a treacherous military specialist, but this doesn't mean that the anxieties go away. 
I mean, indeed, in the late 20s, some Bolsheviks are talking in terms of a military coup because they're employing these military specialists. So there are a lot of continued anxieties after once the civil war has come to an end. And really the final couple of things in the 20s are Trotskyists, right? That's one of them is Trotsky's head of the Red Army and in the power struggle in the 1920s, um, he does keep a kind of a band of, of, of supporters and it's a minority of officers in the army, but the, there's a, the political police in particular, they, they, they view them with a lot of suspicion. And, and, and uh, in 1927, you know, they're, they're really pushing this line that these military Trotskyists are going to attempt a military coup. And you have a war scare in 27 as well. Yeah, exactly. So we're all kind of aligned, particularly in 1927. But at that point, you know, Stalin rejects it. We believe it's about that. But again, it, I think one of the big stories of the 20s and going into the 30s is how the political police really uh, do push the view that the, the army could easily be subverted. And they're, they're constantly looking to expose plots, you know, among military specialists, among Trotskyists. Uh, and and the, the really the final thing here in the 20s is, is this, the whole atmosphere within the Soviet Union and, and outside is one that there are, that it's full of rumours about a military coup, about a counter-revolutionary conspiracy, and these are often, you know, attached to Tukhachevsky, who's seen as this Russian Bonaparte kind of figure. You know, he, he's the person who will uh, get rid of Stalin. And the political police use this to their own advantage. You know, they cultivate these rumours of it because you know, it's a good way to infiltrate white organisations abroad. You know, they set up fake counter-revolutionary groups. They say Tukhachevsky's involved. And then they, they, they kind of persuade the whites to join. And then they can get these constant feed of intelligence but what it does is that it, it creates a constant drip feed of hearsay about the red army particularly about the high command and these things don't go away you know they come back in the 30s and they have more of an impact when the when the atmosphere has you know, changed quite substantially yeah the 1920s is is really fascinating in this aspect where it really is a decade of anxiety within the Soviet Union you see it manifest in so many places i mean not just in terms of what you're talking about but you see it also in culture you can see it in the daily reporting of the newspaper you even i mean i saw it when i was writing about the Komsomol there's a lot of anxiety everywhere about infiltration corruption degradation how much of this do you also connect to the to the fact that post-revolutionary Russia is a pretty destroyed and destabilized place in general? I mean, you know, the, the Bolsheviks don't inherit a state that A, works very well, B, a society that has experienced a lot of devastation, a lot of movement, a lot of destruction. And of course, the economy itself in the 1920s is doing really poorly. So how does the overall general kind of political and cultural context also feed into this as well? Well, I think there's certainly a problem for the army and anxieties about you know, possible invasion uh, due to the economy, right? There's, there's this, the money is short for military spending. This is one of the big issues of the 1920s. And you have people like Tukhachevsky who are constantly lobbying quite aggressively for more money, but they, they don't get it. Even during the first five-year plan, you know, there are limits on the amount of money that can be assigned military spending. And this is sitting alongside the fact that the, you know, the Bolsheviks, and you know, particularly uh, Stalin and his inner circle, they believe this kind of final day of reckoning with the capitalist world will arrive at some time. And so that, I think there are, there are a lot of tensions within the military on this particular issue. And you start to get the formation of different groups within the army at this time, particularly between uh, Tukhachevsky on the one side, who's kind of ambitious, he's pushing for more spending, mechanization. 
And then on the other side, you've got Voroshilov, Clement Voroshilov, the head of the army from 1925, Stalin's old comrade uh, from the Civil War. And this causes a bit of a crisis, really, in the military, in the sense that once well, Voroshilov and you know, Semyon Budyani, Alexander Yegorov, they start to perceive Dukhachevsky's demands as something more than just wanting money from the army. They see this, you know, him actually... Uh, wanted to increase his influence, wanted to perhaps seize control of the military. And Stalin kind of sees all of this, you know, at a time when the regime is very concerned about war, particularly in 1927. I mean, actually, we've already talked about the war scare, but I suppose one of, one of the key moments in 1927 is when, uh, one of the famous moments is when the Soviet special envoy in Poland is assassinated. And, you know, there's that famous letter to Molotov from Stalin where he says, you know, I can sense the hand of England, you know, they, they want to repeat Sarajevo. So this is France Ferdinand all over again, and there will be war. But at, at the same time as this is happening, you've got this divided military elite, you've got a lot of bickering about military spending, but it's really got this subtext about ambition and seizing power. And this is the kind of thing that Stalin doesn't forget. And, you know, even though Tukhachevsky, you know, continues his kind of onward, well, he continues to kind of rise through the uh, career ladder. It's an, another issue which comes back around in the 1930s. Why don't you talk a bit about Tukhachevsky, his background, his his rise into in the military, particularly during the Civil War. And because I, I find it interesting because most of the what I knew of in terms of the concerns about Bonapartism, of course, applied to Trotsky. But and I never I didn't actually know that Tukhachevsky was another figure that was seen or perceived as a potential Bonaparte to take over the Soviet Union. So talk a bit about Tukhachevsky and, and his place within this system. Well, Tukhachevsky really comes into the Bolshevik sphere in the Civil War. You know, he's a military specialist. So he's, he's identified as being a bourgeois officer. And he's a young commander. He's, he scores many kind of military victories, kind of dramatic victories in the Civil War. And this really propels his rise to the 1920s. At the point where he's having this dispute uh, with Voroshilov and various people in the high command, he's chief of staff in the 1920s, and he's trying to get as many resources as possible, and he eventually gains Stalin's trust by the 1930s, really, when, when the Japanese invade Manchuria, and Stalin buys into the Tukhachevsky spending plan, but, you know, that's kind of a, a separate issue. Going back to the uh, Bonapartism, yeah, absolutely, is the name most associated with Rumours about Bonapartism, military plot, military conspiracy in the 1920s. And it's because he becomes a world-renowned, world-famous kind of military leader, particularly by the 1930s. And in white circles, he's exactly the type of person they want to lead some kind of military uprising or military coup. I mean, they use his name so much, the political police, that they, they eventually get ordered to take it off. Uh, and stop using it, but they carry on anyway. You know, they they, they continue to use his name because it has so much currency. And, and and so in that respect, you know, that he... I mean, there are other people who this label of Bonaparte and the you know, military kind of coup get attached to. He, he's kind of the prime person in these OGPU disinformation plots. Now, the political police finally carry out an operation in uh, called Operation Vesna in the spring of 1931, what was this, and, and how did it shape the relationship between the party and the army into the 1930s? Okay, so Operation Vesna, um, this is a very large operation carried out by the political police, 1930 to 1931, um, and it's really the first major plot, conspiracy, supposed conspiracy discovered in the Red Army. You know, we've got to remember that these plots aren't real. 
There's no grounding to them. And the estimates of the, the, the number of military specialists arrested, it's, it's by and large military specialists, you know, this would fall in the civil war for the Bolsheviks, you know, 3,000 up to 10,000. And they're accused of uh, uh, working for foreign powers, carrying out espionage, carrying out sabotage. Uh, they, they, they're charged with, you know, wanting to overthrow the regime at the time of war. And so in that respect, it, it's a culmination the, for the first time of these long-standing security anxieties, which go all the way back to 1918. But what really sparks Operation Vesna in the late 20s is the foreign threat. So this kind of, you know, comes back to what we've been talking about. You know, this, the, the, the late 1920s is, is one which the regime is very worried about in terms of foreign invasion. And the, the spark for Vesna is when the political police receive intelligence, you know, or supposed intelligence that... Uh, the British government is working with the Poles, it's working with Ukrainian nationalists, and they're going to attack the USSR. And this leads to arrests in Ukraine of former imperial officers, and some of these have ties to serving military specialists. All of this swings attention to the Red Army, and this is where you get this eruption in mass arrests. And one of the key things about this is Tukhachevsky is incriminated right, in 1930. And this is unsurprising in, in light of all these rumours about him being potential Russian Bonaparte. There are, you know, there's evidence, that the confessional evidence comes from two, two um, military specialists, you know, they're tortured into saying that, that Tukhachev is a counter-revolutionary. And again, it's the political police who are really pushing this to Stalin, saying that he's a threat to the state, you need to do something about it. But Stalin hesitates, he's not so sure. And so he, he eventually arranges a confrontation with Tukhachevsky, but you know he's convinced of his innocence after this, this this discussion. And he later writes to Molotov saying, you know, Tukhachevsky turned out to be a hundred percent clean. So it's important, I think, for a couple of reasons. As I say, it's mass arrest for the first time. And even though Stalin lets Tukhachevsky go and says he's innocent, you know, he doesn't forget the fact that this operation led to the arrest of thousands of military specialists. You know, there's a problem in the Red Army. And thirdly, as I say, it's the political police who are pushing this plot quite aggressively. You know, they're looking to expose conspiracies in the Red Army, and actually they managed to do it in 1930, and they come out of this in a much stronger position. It's actually also interesting that this comes on the, right on the heels of collectivization, where the Red Army did also play a role in, in, in mobilizing and actually putting down unrest. What was the fallout of collectivization on the Red Army, particularly even amongst the rank and file? Yeah, absolutely. Collectivization happens at the same time as Operation Vesna. So you have, on the one hand, you've got the mass arrests of military specialists in the kind of upper ranks, and you've got a huge destabilization in the lower ranks because this is the workers and peasants' red army. So this, you know, is an attack on the peasantry during collectivization has a an obvious knock-on effect. And you know, the political police and the political administration of the red army they compile lots of reports talking about this huge wave of discontent in the lower ranks of the Red Army during collectivization. You know, they have to stop Red Army units going into the villages to assist with collectivization. They have to do various different schemes to protect the families of Red Army soldiers, you know, because the, the peasants, the peasant families are writing to their serving relatives, telling them about the horrors of collectivization. And the two things actually start to coincide. You, you know, some of the interrogation transcripts of these military specialists in Operation Vesna they say things like, you know, we, the, the, the plot was timed that there'd be peasant uprisings. It's when the, you know, the, when the regime is, is at its weakest, this is when the foreign powers will strike. So these two threats really come together. And so 
really 1930, 1931, the whole, but all levels of the Red Army are destabilized. You know, it's a major crisis, and I think it's a big tipping point for the regime in terms of how they view the subsequent security of their military force. Now, you've said repeatedly that throughout the beginning of the Civil War and throughout the 1920s, the political police is really pushing hard and they're reporting on, you know, suspected spies, suspected infiltrators. Talk about the, the political police, the culture within it that gave this stuff such a life of its own to be exaggerated and its relationship with the Red Army. Yeah, the political police are very important in in. in, in as you say, kind of pushing these different plots and conspiracies. Uh, this can be seen right at the very beginning after the Civil War. Uh, I mean, the, the, there is kind of some context for this in the sense that some moderate Bolsheviks, people like Bukharin, you know, they want cuts to the uh, political police, you know, they want the fewer resources. And so it makes sense for them, you know, them to kind of reply and say, well, there are the dangers to the state and there are these various different plots in the Red Army. And of course, they are the driving force with a lot of these disinformation campaigns in the 1920s, which used Tukhachevsky's name to try and ensnare the whites. But you, re you really see them try and convince Stalin at certain points in time. So Vyacheslav Menzhinsky, 1927, yeah, he, he writes to Stalin several letters talking about a Trotsky's coup, using his military Trotskyists, and they have to have a crackdown, they need to do something about this. And Stalin hesitates and he, you know, he doesn't really buy this and they don't they don't follow through with this this crackdown that Manjinsky wanted. Um, in Operation Vesna in 1930, Manjinsky's doing the same thing. You know, he's the one who approaches Stalin about Tukhachevsky's incrimination. And the, the interesting thing about this is that he's he's kind of going around Voroshilov, right? So the head of the Red Army is kind of being kept out of the loop. So there is this kind of dynamic, I think, about who is watching the army, who is actually policing the army. Because one of the things I write about in the book is that the army, you know, the political administration, the officer corps, there are a lot of failures in self-policing. So, you know, they, they, in terms of things that kind of Archgeny has written about before, and the kind of family circles and different units and alliances looking after each other. And so Voroshilov finds it very difficult to get the military the military to actually, you know, self-police and to find the enemy within. The political police have a different way of doing this. They can, of course, kind of beat confessions out of people. They can come up with the goods. They can say the Stalin that we found these enemies. We discovered these plots. And this this, this happens again with Yezhov when he becomes, you know, head of the NKVD in September 1936. He, out of anyone, he's the person pushing for more enemies to ex be exposed in the Red Army for the, you know, there, there must be more enemies, they haven't been all found. So they're a driving force, the political police, all the way from its existence to Cheka to um, the NKPD on the Yezhov. As you said, Stalin is getting all this information, he's been getting it for years, and he seems to hesitate, or he doesn't buy it, or he's not convinced. But then Sergei Kirov is murdered in 1934. And finally, Stalin uh, unleashes uh, political violence and, and a purge on the Red Army in 1937. Why did Stalin finally come to this conclusion to unleash this violence on the Red Army, particularly considering the fact that the Stalinist leadership believed that war was on the horizon? Why would they for destabilize the military like this? Well, this is, this is the big question, right? the big question of the book. You're right in saying you know, military spending is rising in 1937. You know, the, the Bolsheviks are increasingly conscious that world war is on the horizon, and it seems like a stunning risk to destabilize the army at that precise point. And I think one of the important things about this is if we try and trace these 
long-standing security anxieties which have you know surrounded the Red Army since 1918, go through the 20s to the 1930s, that alone doesn't explain the military purge. You know, even in the 1930s where you've got you know aggressive expansion, this Japan, you've got Nazi Germany, a threat of a two-front war, but even more concerns about subversion and espionage, you know, there has to be more to really trigger this. There isn't a direct line to 1937. And so this is where Sergei Kirov comes in. You know, he's assassinated December 1934. And this is important because this obviously leads to Trotskyists being uh, arrested, members of the former opposition, 1935, 36, because you know, Stalin is kind of convinced that they're involved. But this is where the military Trotskyists come back in. Right? This small group from the 1920s who supported Trotsky during the power struggle, you know, they are now increasingly arrested. And so by the time you get to the, the first show trial in August 1936, you know, there are direct connections between those who go on trial, Trotskyist officers who are still serving in the ranks, you know, who kind of recanted in the late 20s and were allowed back in. And so this really throws the, the spotlight on the Red Army. And then Yezhov comes in, right, September, one month after the trial, and he starts saying, well, we've got to find more of these military Trotskyists, there are more people in the ranks. And so the, these are that's kind of the first of like trigger points, I think, which, which really lead, culminate in the military purge. The second is when the, the, the kind of the conspiracy, the broader narrative that's driving the Great Terror over 36 and 37, it starts to evolve. And so it becomes much more about uh, foreign threats. You know, the danger is not just domestic terrorists who have killed Kirov, who are planning over assassinations. It's, it's these people, but they're working on the orders of Nazi Germany and Japan. And this widens the parameters of who could be arrested. Because the, the military Trotskyists aren't of particularly high rank. You know, they're not to be chest. They're, they're mid-ranking people, and there's not that many of them. But as soon as the the, the, the uh, terror that is, um, the, the political violence that's affecting the parties, that starts to evolve, it broadens out so other officers can be arrested. And so there is much more concern in 1937 about foreign threats. And of course, you see this in the second show trial. And this puts the Red Army in a very vulnerable position. And, and you see, particularly in the first few months in 1937, senior party members now calling for more scrutiny of the army, scrutiny of the army but Molotov and Voroshilov, uh, Yankamanik, who's the Red Army deputy, is the head of the political administration of the army. He, he, he says in March that the Red Army is full of Japanese, German, Trotskyist agents. You know? So it's, it's increasingly obvious there is a, a growing spy scare in, in the military, kind of March, April. And it's then when you start to get the evidence from Tukhachevsky um, kind of emerge. You know? And this comes from interrogations, forced confessions that say Tukhachevsky is a counter-revolutionary. And, and if you kind of take a step back as well and see the kind of things that Stalin is concerned with kind of around April, May, you know, he's writing, he wrote a very long article about German intelligence and the threat from, from, from Nazi Germany. You know, he, he kind of makes various comments about military intelligence falling into the hands of the Germans. So this all seems to kind of coincide and come together. And what makes this even worse for the military is you get more rumours now start to filter into the Soviet Union, similar to those in the 1920s. But the difference is this time is that Tukhachevsky is now presented as being, you know, he's working with the Nazis. There's a secret connection between the high command and the Germans. And if you think back to the 20s, you know, there's a certain veneer of 
truth in this, in the sense that they, there was the military collaboration between the Reichswehr and the Red Army. And so this all comes at the same time, and then the crucial point is on the 10th of May 1937, where Voroshilov sent a huge report to Stalin, which details that the army is being infiltrated at all levels by foreign agents and counter-revolutionaries, and they've done enormous damage. Tukhachevsky is transferred the very day, and then two weeks later arrested, and then you have the trial in June. So that's kind of how, it's kind of a complex story from 36 to 37, but it's really that shift in what drives the terror that, that, that brings all these vulnerabilities that surrounded the Red Army for so long. They all come rushing back, uh, really, between February and May. Now, now, our general understanding of, of the purge in the army is, is about the arrest and execution of Tukhachevsky and uh, the officer corps on false charges of being part of a, a military fascist plot. But how did the purge play out in the military's lower ranks? How did they respond? What did the, the soldiers understand what was going on? Yeah, I mean, this is really interesting because if you look at how um, the military purge has been written about in, in the past, you know, it's often called the Tukhachevsky affair. Right, that's the label that's commonly applied to it. But this really it gives a sense that it's just about Tukhachevsky and like a you know, small group of officers who go on trial you know, in June, and it, it's about personality. Stalin doesn't trust them, and that's pretty much the military purge. But you know, as I said at the outset, 35,000 people are affected by this, you know, at the very least. And so there is a, a, a wave of denunciations from the summer 1937. So the, the, these spread immediately and they, they go through different networks. So they filtered down military districts. And it, it kind of, in the past, well, mid-1930s, there's a lot of complaints about family circles in the Red Army, you know, oligarchies. And this is, you know, I think this provides a lot of fuel to the fire for the denunciation. So there, there's a lot of kind of groups which are, which are now completely decimated by these. But in terms of how ordinary soldiers can understand this, they find it very disorientating. The political administration of the Red Army writes various different reports, you know, senior military people go and see how you know, the, the soldiers were responding to the arrest of Tukhachevsky. You know, he was someone who was you know, praised as being a hero of the Soviet Union, and now he's a counter-revolutionary. And there's, you know, the, the, there's reports which are full of doubt. You know, the, the soldiers don't know who they trust. But there's also a profound sense of panic. You know, some military districts report that the soldiers and the officers, they, they don't feel they can do anything. They're, they're, they're scared of being arrested. That there's a kind of paralysis um, in parts of the system. And PUR, you know, the political administration, they report thousands of letters being sent every day uh, in denunciations. But, but ultimately, you know, this process is reined in in 1938. You know, the, the signs of this... Early in 1938, you start to get criticism of slanderers and careerists. You know, there's a change in tone, and, and, and you really you start to get people and you know, senior people in the army talking about 50% of these arrests are incorrect, and it's our duty to fix this. And so I think it, that that kind of underlines the chaotic nature of this purge process. You know, it's kind of an explosion of, of violence and denunciation. It's, I, you know, it, it's by no means kind of a carefully controlled. Process, but I think that's indicative of the way that it begins. You know, the Stalin's regime, Stalin's inner circle, are kind of shocked by the what they believe to be a, a widespread infiltration of the Red Army, and so uh, it's not. I don't think this is a particularly well controlled or thought through process. Yeah, it, it certainly, as as several other historians of the terror pointed out, uh, it spins out of control rather rapidly. 
to all area, uh, you know, areas throughout the, the Soviet society and the political class. Now, w- one of the the interesting things you state uh, in your book is that you directly connect the mass operations in the summer of 1937 with the purge in the military. And as we know, the mass operations account for the vast majority of arrests and the vast majority of executions. And the victims of those operations tend to be your average Soviet citizen. So talk about the mass operations and what is its connection to the military purge? Yeah, I, I make a, a direct connection between the military purge and mass operations. So as, as you say, um, the mass operations are, you know, it's the bulk of the Great Terror when the Great Terror becomes the Great Terror, largely against ordinary people, and it, 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 it's arrest by cohort. You know, so it's, it, it's not individuals, it's arresting kind of kulaks, uh, poles, and, you know, different types of operations, some based on nationality, some against kulaks and anti-Soviet, kind of so-called anti-Soviet elements. And there are two explanations for the mass operations, well, two dominant explanations. The first is that the, the threat of war is the, is the explanation. If Stalin sees the war is coming, in, you know, he's worried about it since 1937, and he has to do something to get rid of all these unreliable people who might turn against him when the war begins. But this doesn't really explain the timing. That was always my kind of thought about this, that, you know, um, that the threat, the international threat to the Soviet Union gets worse in 1938 and not particularly in 1937. So the timing doesn't seem to quite work. And the other explanation is a uh, you know, uh, kind of Archigedi's view on this is that it's about domestic political pressure. So that there are elections to the Supreme Soviet in 1937. These are open elections and the various party members are worried about losing out to kulaks and anti-Soviet elements and they, they kind of lobby Stalin to do something about this and he, he does this in quite a sudden move that's not particularly well well planned. But I think that military purge, it comes at the moment where uh, the mass operations just begin, right? The, and I don't think the timing is a coincidence. Uh, if you look at how the, the military purge actually began, you know, Stalinist regime thinks about uh, that the, the, the military is being infiltrated at all levels, that there are German agents involved, Japanese agents, that they're, they're ready to strike when war begins. You know, this is very similar to the charges that you get leveled in the mass operations. This is about removing a fifth column. And both of these seem to be about removing a fifth column. And I think from the regime's point of view, you know, how do they know this isn't the tip of the iceberg? It's hard to infiltrate the military, you know, compared to maybe recruiting kulaks and of disgruntled kind of anti-Soviet various different people and so I think the military purge shocks the regime I think well you know we've got to do something about these the, the security problem which is much broader than the Red Army you know and I think this perfectly aligns with something you know, like Archigedi has written about that you know the, the party are very worried about these kind of anti-Soviet elements and kulaks in 1937 I think maybe the military purge gives Stalin a shock to actually do something about it so I think the timing and, and the, how both the purge and the mass operations are framed are, are quite similar. And finally, what are some of the lasting effects of this purge on the Red Army? Because one of the standard views is that by basically decapitating the, the leadership of the Red Army, this results in the Army's really poor performance in the early parts of early years of World War II. So what is, in, in, from what you discovered and, and from what, what your books uh, lays out, what are some of the lasting effects of the terror on the army? I think it's, it's kind of a tough question in some respects because you, you kind of naturally fall into this counterfactual of, you know, had the military purge not happened, what would have happened in 1941? 
but I think they were understandable. You know, well, there, there are, there's, there's effects that we can kind of easily understand in the sense that you people like Tukhachevsky and a lot of capable, talented officers are you know gone, you know, which I think there is a problem with that lost expertise. Firstly, and there is a natural effect on morale. You know, the the, the disorientation that that's caused by the merger purge of the thirty-seven and thirty-eight. You know, this isn't soon forgotten. I don't think. You know, it's a highly destabilizing thing it gets out of hand but at the same time you know people are reinstated you know as i said there's this pre 1938 there's this realization that a lot of the, you know, these arrests are incorrect and so people are brought back into the ranks but of course you know this doesn't completely mitigate against the um the effects of the purge and you know people like roger reese you know have kind of a, a view on this you know, saying that you know the purge is just one many factors in 1941, which, you know, I, I agree with. And, you know, he identifies that there are broader problems with the professionalism in the Red Army, you know, which are kind of longer lasting, and that really matters in 1941. But I don't know, I think for me, rather than thinking, trying to assess what would have happened without the purge and, you know, what, what's kind of its knock-on effect in 1941, I think I'm more interested in how it affects Stalin's thinking about the army in those years after. You know, and whether that plays a significant role in 1940, does he still feel he can trust his military? Because the arrests do start to begin again before you get to Operation Barbarossa. You know, there are more officers arrested, there are charges or accusations of conspiracy. So I think actually that might be the more interesting question because that, you know, so much of you know, 1941 is really down to what uh, Stalin does, what really doesn't do. I'm kind of interested in how the military purge plays into that, but it's not something that I've, I have a definite view on at this point. That was Peter Whitewood, a lecturer in history at York St. John University, where he specializes in Soviet history, military history, and the aftermath of war. He's the author of The Red Army and the Great Terror, Stalin's Purge of the Soviet Military, published by University Press of Kansas. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog. Write a review or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to everyone who's been contributing. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. Sincere and devoted friend and cousin, Vili. 
I cannot consider Austria's action any noble war. Thanks for your telegram. It would be quite possible for Russia to remain a spectator of the conflict. The official message by your without involving Europe in the most is in a very different tone. Military measures would jeopardize my position mediator. Which I readily accept on your appeal to the friendship and my health. Really trust in your wisdom and friendship, your love and Nikki.